New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Have you ever looked into the eyes of a wild animal? If so, you know how its gaze unnerves us and we're struck with awe and wonder in its presence. It can be described as a sacred experience. Even in urban areas, there are more opportunities to encounter the wild, but we have to actually make an effort to get out of the confines of our homes and immerse ourselves in the natural landscape. Today we'll be exploring a pervasive ailment of our age, which is nature deficit disorder, with our guest, Richard Louvre. Richard Louvre's writings and books have helped launch an international movement to connect children, families, and communities to nature. He's the co-founder and chair emeritus of the nonprofit Children and Nature Network. In 2008, he was awarded the Audubon Medal, which he shares with such notables as Rachel Carson, E.O. Wilson, and Sir David Attenborough. He's the author of many books, including Last Child in the Woods and Our Wild Calling, how connecting with animals can transform our lives and save theirs. Join us for the next hour as we explore how our interactions with animals can help save not only ourselves, but also the planet with our guest, Richard Louvre. I'm speaking with Richard at his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Richard, welcome. Well, thank you. And it's an honor to be here. Uh, I see the list of the, it's like a, a, a legion of heroes for me personally <laughs> that you've interviewed before. Well, me too. It's just been such an honor to, to be in their presence and to have that um, really archived now, uh, their voice on, on tape and, and have it in, in our archive. You talk about something about generation amnesia and that's kind of what we're facing when we're when we're talking about nature deficit disorder can you elaborate on that i, I always tr i'm very fastidious about crediting the source of good terms and ideas and i'm trying to 
generational amnesia. Uh, I can't remember who who that originally came from. I apologize to the source, but it basically it says that uh, uh, each generation, as it whatever a generation is, every few years, people get used to what is in terms of what's available in nature. What what does it look like outside your window? And then during the next few years, that changes. And then it changes again and again. And people kind of get stuck where they think the normal is based on their own experience. Uh, but the, the generations to come don't remember that normal. And so we don't really remember. We can read about it, but we don't remember what it was like when our grandparents were around in terms of nature. We, we can get tastes of it and glimpses of it, but... And as nature is is diminished, uh, we settle for less and less. I think a good example of that might be um, just um, having to go through security at airports. Some of us are old enough to remember how we just sort of went to an airport and you know went to the gate and, <laughs> and without yeah. any problems. But now there's a new normal. And others have grown up with that normal and don't even remember. They have no memory of that. Um, yeah. So uh, that that can be a, a problem as we lose this knowledge of how things were, where we were cooperating more fully with nature in, in certain ways, um, which reminds me of the... Um, Right now, we're in the era, the Holocene era, um, or the, some people call it the Age of Man era. Um, and then now there's something that, that is mentioned, I think, Glenn Albrecht, an mm -hmm. eco-philosopher from Australia, um, called the, the possibility of moving into the symbiocene is that, am yeah. I pronouncing that right, uh, era? Uh, I think he says symbiocene. And you know, Glenn is, uh, I, I met him when I was in Australia. He's, he's really, uh, I, I think, one of the best environmental minds in, in the world right now. He's a very humble guy. And um, I've always been uncomfortable uh, or the last few years. I've been very uncomfortable with the idea of the Anthropocene. E.O. Wilson uh, calls that the age of loneliness because the Anthropocene is human-centered, man-centered, anthro-centered. And uh, we think, you know, we, we look at ourselves as kind of the god of the earth, that we have done so much damage to it that there's a case to be made that we are the god of the earth, that we are the center of uncreation. On the other hand, uh, we're not. We know that. We know that deep down. And to pretend that we are so important, that this is the age of man, uh, I think extends our hubris, which brought us to this point where so much has been destroyed. And when, when E.O. Wilson is talking about this, he's talking about some people interpret the Anthropocene as a time when we're, it's down to us and domestic uh, animals and farm animals and a few wild animals. 
And the reason he calls that the age of loneliness is because who do we talk to? And in Our Wild Calling, um, I write about that. And I also talk about another hero of mine that I, that I knew well, pretty well, uh, uh, which is uh, Thomas Berry. And uh, he actually came to my book signing. It was the last event of the book tour in 2005 for, our, for uh, Last Child in the Woods. And I'd quoted him in the book. I know I'm going on a tangent here, but I, I quoted oh, please, him. Please, please do. I, I quoted him in the book, and um, the Sierra Club and some other groups had a um, a coffee for me, and this was the last day. And somebody said he was coming. I couldn't believe it. And they said that it was the first time that he had left uh, his assisted living uh, home. Uh, facility uh, in two years since he had a stroke. And he was, I think, 91 or 92 then. And he, to those who don't know, is, I mean, Newsweek called him the most provocative eco-theologian of his, of our time. He's a Catholic monk and had written many books uh, that were I think far ahead of their time. Very gentle, amazing man. And anyhow, he he arrived. I was so impressed. And he arrived. uh, And it was like the sea parted because all of these people in North Carolina, he's he's particularly revered. And the people stood aside each side. And he came toward me. He looked a lot like Mr. Rogers, who I've also met and written about. And uh, in fact, when the New York Times called me after Thomas Berry uh, died. They asked me for a quote, and I said, there's only two truly beatific people that I've met. One is uh, Thomas Berry, and the other one is Mr. Rogers. And so Thomas Berry came up to me, and he grabbed my hands, and he said, I've been waiting for 10 years for somebody to write this book. And So I kind of melted. And then we sat down. They had to sit there and, and, and talk to these people who had come. And I'm sitting next to Thomas Berry. I mean, he's, he's a great figure in our history, in, in human history, I think, certainly in the 20th and 21st century. And uh, he talked about the ecozoic, which is another way of looking at the symbiocene in which we learn to live in harmony with other animals, perhaps someday. And he actually talked about technology be one of the ways that we learn to live in harmony with animals. Whenever I go back to North Carolina, and I've spent the next 15 years giving a lot of speeches around the country and around the world, because last child changed my life. And I would go see Thomas Berry at his assisted living. And I would pick him up and we'd go to his fav- favorite restaurant. And, and there was red leather booths and we would sit there. And I would sit there and just listen. And uh, he, he just touched me deeply with his wisdom. And um, I saw him not too long before he died. 
And we were sitting in his uh, uh, assisted living uh, unit. And he started talking about uh, the fact that these these facilities for people in their last year should be different and should be filled with nature. At that time, I'd, I'd written a book called The Nature Principle, which was uh, as much about society as it was about nature deficit disorder for adults. It was more about that than children. And talked about biophilic architecture, biophilic design. You know, cities can become engines of biodiversity through, through that kind of design where you weave nature into it from the beginning and keep it there. Um, and he was talking about nursing homes and assisted living places being designed that way. And he insisted on being wheeled out in his wheelchair every day uh, to connect with nature. And I think about the aging population and think, you know, we've got to do something about these places that so that they're, you know, humane. That's the wrong word, isn't it? So that they're filled with uh, awe and wonder through nature. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Richard Louvre, and he is the author of Our Wild Calling. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, richardlouvre.com, and he spells his last name L-O-U-V, richardlouvre.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. He's also the author of Last Child in the Woods, as well as many, many other books that he's just mentioned. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Richard Louvre, and he is the author of Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. And we're talking about the trajectory that we're on and how we can possibly shift it in ways that might benefit not only ourselves, but the whole earth. And you you mentioned about how cities can become these biodiverse places and and already there there are some indications that that that's happening in certain ways i kn- i know that we've done many interviews uh with William McDonough 
who has done something like Cradle to Cradle and how we make things. And he he was one of the first ones to um, put put the grasslands on top of the huge, huge, many acres of um, factory, the Ford Motor Company, the Rouge River Ford Motor Company, uh, factory and that allowed the migrating birds into because their path didn't change, but suddenly they're landing in oil fields and things like that. But now they can land once more in the grasslands and and lay their eggs and be so much more healthy. It just made so much more sense to me. Uh, so this is just one little little thing. Um, and I know you mentioned in the book something about um, Singapore. Can you describe what Singapore has done? Well, S- Singapore has created these elevated gardens, elevated wild places uh, all f- through the city, and they're they're quite majestic. But many cities around the country have begun to do this. This and. England, they're talking about London as a national park, the whole city being a national park uh, by uh, greening it. And there's a lot of ways that this can be done, and I write a lot about this in The Nature Principle. Uh, McDonough, I, I met, and uh, he came to a speech that I gave in his town. And, or he, Actually, he didn't. His German partner, uh, business partner, came. And uh, so I came to his office the next day. I was invited and went to see him. And uh, he took me around there in this uh, architectural drawing of the building. And it was uh, it was a hospital that he was working on designing in Spain, in a small town in Spain. And it was three sides. One side was done in solar panels. The whole thing was solar panels done in the colors of a, uh, a butterfly that was about to go extinct in that bioregion. Another side of the building was, uh, it, it was covered with, with vines. It was a green uh, wall. And then the third side was, they had balconies and they were, had little farms on every balcony so that the, so the balconies would raise food that would feed the people in the, in the hospital. And this is great energy efficiency in, in every way. And also studies have shown that buildings that are designed with biophilic design, uh, the, the people in a hospital, for instance, use uh, less pain medicine. They tend to get well faster after an operation because of the presence of nature in the design of the building and in their rooms and in the hospital and around the hospital. Uh, and workplaces that are work- built like this, the studies are showing that people are more productive, uh, uh, sick time goes down, turnover gets better. And so McDonough is showing me this building. And what was great about this is that, well, that's great energy efficiency, great, but he didn't stop there. He said he pointed to the, the doorway to the entrance and the whole outside of the first floor was in glass and he said people who walk into that entryway they're going to be raising 
butterflies on that first story, ongoing. The butterfly that's about to go extinct in that bioregion. And so when people walk in, these butterflies at certain time of the year will come and light on them, will sit on their shoulders as they come into the... But he wasn't stopping there. His idea was, let's go to all the churches and synagogues, places of worship, and say, you can do this too. You can bring this butterfly back. Let's go to all the businesses and say, do this in your business uh, building. Go to all the schools, get the school of kids raising. We can bring this butterfly back. See, that's, that's a metaphor to me of how cities could be. Why can't cities be that way? There's other ways to do t- this too. I've I've written a good book called uh, "Bringing Nature Home." He's a botanist in Delaware. He argues for something called uh, a homegrown national park, and I've actually promoted this over the years more than he has. I promote him more than he does because he's a humble guy. And uh, the basic idea is: let's replant our yards and the gardens on our roofs and our window boxes in native species. And let's have kids doing that. Let's have families doing that. When you do that, when you plant the native plants specific to that bioregion, that's very important. It's not just any native plant. It's specific to that, what, what, what evolved in that bioregion. When you do that, you start to bring back the insects that are the basis of the food chain and when you do that, you can bring back butterfly migration routes. You can bring back uh, bird migration routes. And he imagines these going throughout cities as kind of uh, essentially uh, wildlife corridors uh, on private land. And we can start doing this tomorrow. We don't have to wait for government to tell us to do it. We can do it tomorrow. I just want to mention our our engineer sent me a note and said uh, his name is Douglas W. Tallamy. And I've argued that we ought to think of that even bigger. Why not have a worldwide homegrown park? Why not have kids in Singapore sitting there um, uh, talking about the animals that came back to their yards or to their property, their schoolyard, with kids in Palo Alto? talking about how they changed their schoolyard and reporting on the animals that came back. My wife and I did this in our own yard, and all kinds of animals, uh, insects in particular, started showing up. And, 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 and lizards, it filled up with lizards. And there's a concept in, in one of the books that I wrote um, called um, Human Nature uh, Social Capital. Why is it when we talk about social capital, we only talk about one species? You know? um, those lizards, I would watch when I was riding out through the glass door, out there doing their push-ups. You know? There's more, there was more uh, posturing in my backyard than there is in the U.S. Congress. And I watched them and I would laugh. <laughs> you know? I would laugh. And that's good for my health. So they're part of my social network. That reminds me, Richard, there's something that you you report on in I'm sit-ins where where you 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 actually it's it's an activity and it was oh John Young. John Young from Santa Cruz in uh eight shields. He he 
he teaches and mentors people into the um, into nature, and he talks about sit-ins where where you actually go regularly to one spot. Do you recall that? Can you describe that for us? Uh, th- these are called sit spots. Sit and spots. John is, he doesn't like to be called a teacher or an educator. He is an, a nature connector. He's a, uh, a mentor to people in how to connect with the natural world. And uh, Sit spots, I don't think that's specific only to him, but others have used it. But he really uses it a lot. He takes hundreds of people out into the forest to teach them bird language. Not so much to tweet like a bird, but to understand what the birds are signaling. And not only the birds, but the squirrels that mimic the birds. And and they talk with each other in a sense. And the sit spot is a place you could do it in your own yard. You can do it on a rooftop garden. You can do it out in the woods. I did this as a kid and didn't know it had a name. You would pick one spot. For me, it was the edge of the creek. And you would go there there frequently and you would sit in that spot. And when I did that as a kid, the frogs would all, of course, jump in the creek as I approached. And I'd sit down and very slowly, pop, pop, pop. You'd see their heads coming up. And then you could feel what it was like to be a frog. And John says, if you through these sit spots, you can hear a kind of language that nature uses. You can really observe and smell and use all the senses or some of the senses that have atrophied in us that are still there. The people who talk about, scientists who talk about the human senses no longer talk about five senses. They talk conservatively about nine or ten. Some of the scientists talk about as many as 30 human senses. And we sit at computers. We put our kids in front of computers all day in school. And because of that, we are expending a huge amount of energy pushing out as many of those senses as we can so we can concentrate on using two senses to allegedly go anywhere in the world through the internet and to me if you're doing that if we're doing that to kids we're doing that i'm not against tech but if we're doing that so many hours of the day that to me is the very essence of of not being alive now who what parent wants their kid to not be alive fully Right, right, exactly, and, and getting the kids out. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of a, an old Buffy St. Marie song, uh, one of the lines in it, I can call him up without no telephone. <laughs> and uh, it's just like, like one of the senses we have that we, that's atrophied, that we really are connected, and we, we don't even know it because we use these machines to interface and to we pretend like like we can't do it without the machine but but maybe <laughs> maybe we're incorrect in this uh, assumption you know and as i said i'm not anti-tech I'm, i make that clear in all of these books in fact there's a kind of a bumper sticker statement that i make and i think in the nature principle uh, which is the more high-tech our lives become the more nature we need 
Oh, I think nice, you had, nice. I think you had one of the Kaplans on your show. And, and yeah, yeah I, um, she and her husband, uh, husband and wife research team, and they talked about the, the fact that uh, we absolutely need nature to help us uh, recover, our brains neurologically recover from too much screen time. So we have to have more nature in the future to help us recover from screen time, not less. I'm here with Richard Louvre, and he is the author of Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Richard Louvre, the author of Our Wild Calling, and we're talking about immersing ourselves more in the natural world, uh, more so than ever. And, you know, um, there's something going on that is happening right now. Um, We're taping this in the early fall of 2020. And we're, we've been sheltering in place. And some of us have seen all of these videos when, especially before people were really getting out and about and the streets were rather empty, we saw these YouTubes of all of these animals that came out of hiding right in the middle of our own neighborhoods, our own cities, and they're running down the street. And it just made my heart feel so good. But this is what's happening is that there are wild animals in our cities right now. You pose a kind of question You say the main question isn't whether they can adapt to us, but whether we can adjust to them. And, you know, Richard, I was thinking as I read that and as I read other things that you've written, we try, um, let's say our elected officials try to keep us safe. And so they try and legislate safety. And so when we're talking about this kind of wildness that that is is coming in contact with us, the coyotes and the raccoons and the 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 even the bears that wander into town or or the mountain lions that that come close to to urban centers and so forth and so on that you know we're trying to protect ourselves from all of this, but I don't think that we can legislate um safety, so to speak. And what do you have to say about how we can interact with this wildness that's that's available to us and, and not squash it, but also stay safe? Well, you know, it's interesting during the pandemic, and I, I wrote an op-ed for the LA Times about this, about how people were finding great solace in company in the animals right outside their windows, which they had not noticed before often, and certainly in their pets. You know, the, the, the shelters have emptied out because people have gone in, you know, have, have gotten dogs that they 
wouldn't normally have gotten. I think that a lot of this is design. A lot of those animals that came out into the streets were there anyhow. They didn't come in from outside. One of the things that happens with wild animals when they come into the city, first they tend to be a certain kind, uh, which are called neophiles, which is they like the new crows, coyotes, um, foxes, uh, certainly raccoons. Um, So they're attracted to the novel. And one of the funny things is that they're coming into these cities, particularly into cities like Seattle and San Francisco and these cities that attracted techies in the past couple decades, who are also attracted to the new. They've always got to have the latest iPhone, right? So the cities are attracting uh, both people and other animals that are attracted to the new. So they're there anyhow, but what happens is they become, the day-ornal ones become nocturnal often. They hide. In the sense, they become gentler when they come into our cities. They become less dangerous in some ways when they come into the city. You don't see them. What was happening during the pandemic is some of those were just emerging, where you were seeing them, but they were there because nobody was in the street. Uh, but birds right outside our window, we never noticed. People were noticing them. The short answer to your question about how can we live with them, one of the short answers is design, is how we design our cities. We have to separate the wild animals from ourselves as much as we can in cities. Uh, through wildlife corridors. We have to let them have their space. Now, they'll come into our space, and we'll go into their space. But if you make it safer for them, you make it safer for us. But the other thing also is to create more areas of wildness outside of cities so they, uh, so that that is their space. Uh, we have to begin to think in terms of there's a new public health uh, trend called One Health. And what that says basically is we cannot deal with human health alone. We have to treat human health in a public health sense at the same time as we treat the health of animals, including wild animals, at the same time as we treat the health of the earth itself. The pandemic is bringing this home because the roots or the source of the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, are apparently uh, our mistreatment of wild animals. So there's a there's a danger here in that as we move beyond this pandemic and wait for the next one, that we will blame animals, blame wild animals. I don't see any signs of that happening yet. In fact, this overwhelming sense of connection that are, people are surprised that they feel, you know, maybe it's that you don't know what you got till it's gone, like Joni mm-hmm. Mitchell said, but, but they're seeking great solace. And that has to do with a theme that is one of the major themes in our wild calling. We can talk about it if you want, which is um, our loneliness as a species. You know, there are many, many stories in the book, I mean, just it's just filled with incredible stories of human and um, wild animal connections, and it reminded me of a moment in my life that changed my life completely. And it was just a small little moment um, when I was uh, at my bathroom sink, and I turned on the water. 
And then suddenly I noticed that there was a little spider in the sink. And I I watched this. I turned off the water. But before I did that, the spider, which was about to be washed down into the drain, it it got to the stopper and it put uh, put one of its legs up on top of the stopper to stop itself from going down the drain and and then i got the water turned off and and then i took a glass and i put put it on top and i got the spider and i took it outside and that was the first time i I really had a connection. I've always had a fear of spiders. And from that moment on, for the rest of my life, that's what I've done with spiders is that I take a glass and I take it outside. And, and it just to see that it had enough consciousness or enough awareness to know that if it went with the water, it was going to go down the drain or it's going to lead to its demise of some sort. And having that little brief connection changed my life. And your book is full of those stories. And you just mentioned about loneliness. Um, that is, it's more than loneliness for our human fellows. It's, it's a deeper loneliness, isn't it? I mean, is that your experience? Yeah, a few years ago or 15 years ago or so, the medical community began to become very aware of what some have called an epidemic of human loneliness. Uh, and in looking at this, they were discovering that human isolation is, is almost at the same level, perhaps surpassing now obesity and smoking as a cause of early death. Just being isolated, just being lonely. One of the studies that I report on, which was most disturbing to me, looked at generational loneliness and looked starting at the greatest generation and then baby boomers and on down to the youngest generations. What they found was the younger the generation, the more lonely they were. What does that say about a society in which children now are lonelier than the oldest people. It used to be we, we assumed it was the, the opposite of that. So um, I make the case that it's not just antisocial media that's causing this. It's not just bad urban design. It's, you know, it, those are certainly factors. But I make the case in our wild calling that there's a deeper loneliness that this is rooted in, and this is species loneliness, that as a species, we are desperate to feel that we are not alone in the universe. Obviously, this has religious implications, uh, but I think that this is getting worse, and this is feeding this human loneliness. The more disconnected, the more nature deficit disorder we have, as I, as I wrote about in the first book, the farther we get away from nature, the, we have this deep sense of loneliness in our core. And that our reconnection to nature, and perhaps particularly our reconnection to other animals, is an antidote to that. And that's what you just described with your spider story. So many of the stories, and I tell some of my own in the book, you cannot be, it is literally impossible to be lonely. 
during those seconds that you have that connection with another animal. It can't happen. And the more of those connections we have, the more experiences, whether it's, you know, golden eagles or a spider or a polar bear, and, you know, there are, there are dozens of these stories in the book in which people come to the same point that you did. And again, the, what strikes me the most about that is you cannot feel lonely. I, I, I struggle with that. What is that connection? What happens during that moment? And that's the search of the book. And and I think what you're saying also it's it's not to to save different species for our benefit and for us to be less lonely, but it's to save species for just the sake of the species, like they have the right to exist as much as we do. We are just kind of in in this all together. Yeah, and I've, with my work with Children in Nature and the Children in Nature Network, I've been arguing for a long time that our, our positive connection to nature should be considered a human right. All of these studies, you know, in, in, in Last Child in the Woods, there were about 60 studies that I cited in 2005. The connection of our health, our physical, mental health, as well as our cognitive functioning, is connected very much to our connection to nature. It was almost unstudied in the academic world. 60 studies, all I could find are the benefits of nature and the disconnect. Today, uh, we have a page, a, a, a research library in the Children Nature Network website, which is childreninnature.org. There are over a 1,000 studies now. It's become a growth industry. People studying, the, the academic world seriously studying the benefits. If all of this is true, if it is so fundamental to our health, then this should be considered a human right. In 2012, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, with some help from the Children's Nature Network, that's the biggest network, the IUCN, it's the biggest network of, of conservation nonprofits in the world. Uh, they passed a resolution saying that this is a human right for children. I think it's a human right for everyone. But accompanying that human right must be a recognition of the rights of nature. One doesn't go, one doesn't survive without the other. I'm here with Richard Louvre, and he's the author of Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Richard Louvre, the author of Our Wild Calling. And as I said earlier, this book is filled with stories. And one that I recall was about um, the octopus and the diver. And I, I'm sorry, I, I don't recall his name, but um, do you? For once, I can remember a name. It's Paul Dayton. He's a, he's a well-known uh, oceanographer at Scripps Institution in, in uh, La Jolla. And he's among oceanographers. He's, he's one of the heroes. He's, I think he's either approaching or over 80 now. A wonderful, wonderful man that I've gotten to know over the years. He told me this story about how he was, when he was a starving student at the University of Washington, he was out in the Pacific one day at the, on the bottom, and he was collecting samples. He was studying starfish. He was also looking for lunch. He's a starving student. So he was, he was looking for samples. And above him, he felt some large presence come right above him and stop. That's usually not a good sign. <laughs> And he looked up, as he describes, he looked up one side uh, and he saw a large tentacle coming down. And he looked over the other side, saw another large tentacle coming down. And he looked up and he said it was a 12th, you know, it was one of the, the huge octopuses, the, the, the big ones, the giant ones that can have a 12 or 14 foot wing, wingspan of their legs. And he, at the uh, risk of anthropomorphizing them, uh, he said, it looked at me and it came down. It thought I was a clam and it got me. And it wrapped him up. And he said, people think those arms are soft. They're not anything but. They, they, they're like iron. You can't budge them. And the, this, the arms of an octopus are peculiar. Each arm has, in essence, its own brain. And they all work together, including the central brain. But the other arms have it. And also the skin of an octopus has a lot of photons in it, the cells that see. Now, he wasn't saying that the octopus was seeing him with its arms, but he said it certainly was getting to know me better. And he's pushing and pushing. And right then he realized he's out of oxygen. He's down to the last bit of oxygen. So he thinks, he, he does this odd thing that the gazelle does in the mouth of the lion. He relaxed. And the octopus relaxed a little bit. And he pushed off the bottom of the ocean as hard as he could. And he and the octopus started going up to the column of water. And as they went up, Paul could feel the razor-sharp beak of the octopus coming around his neck until he could see the octopus's eye. He said when he looked into the octopus's eye, something happened. And he kind of jokes, kind of. He says, we made our non-aggression pact. And the octopus relaxed a little bit more, pulled back, and he could see both eyes. And then right then they hit the surface, both he and the octopus. He rips off his mask, gasping for air, and he looks down, and the octopus is still there, looking up at him through the water, and they maintain eye contact. The next part of his story is the best part. What does Paul do? He puts his mask back on and he chases the octopus back down as it goes down into the darkness. And as they go down, he told me this detail later, this detail isn't in the book. As they went down, they kind of spiraled around each other. And then he had no more air and he went back up. And he said, I said, Paul, why in the world did you do that? And he said, uh, I, I don't know. This guy's a hardcore scientist, highly respected, but he used the word spiritual. He said, something happened. 
And he doesn't really know how to explain that. Um, other people told me similar stories in, in, in different settings. This happens with our pets. I mean, we, we've all had this experience, I think. There was a, a little boy, uh, a mother in Toronto told me how she walked into the living room one day and her little boy, six years old, is stretched out with their dog. The dog is named Jack, big dog. And the little boy has his arm around Jack. And she overhears her little boy say, I don't have a heart anymore. And she says, what are you saying? And without moving, her little boy says, my heart is in Jack. That permeability, that connection that we feel, we feel that with people, we feel that with other animals as well. And what is that? And then I'll tell you the last story. This was a quick one too. Uh, I was on a lake uh, one morning and I have a boat with a little electric motor, very quiet. And I uh, saw on the shore, uh, shore what I thought were two uh, turkey vultures very large ones. So I ease up with the electric motor to look at them. And I get within 20 feet and I realize these are not vultures. These are two giant golden eagles. And one of them flew up around a peak, came back down. They stayed there. And for what seemed like forever, and I say that because I believe when we have these encounters, we enter altered states. And there's several of them. One of them is that time disappears. Time bends. That's what Paul and the octopus is what he described. Time disappeared for me, and for a long time, or endless time, those eagles were bending down to take a bite of the fish they were eating, and they'd look up at me with eye cut. Down, up, down, up. And I felt something shift, just like Paul did, just like so many of the people who shared those stories with me. I went home, and I... My younger son was home from college that, that weekend, and I told, told him about this. And I said, I don't something here. I said, I don't understand, but Matthew, whoever I say I am, I'm not. Whoever I was in those moments with the Eagles is who I actually am. And I don't have the language to describe it. This is beyond human language. So the search of the book through all of this is really how to define that how to at least try to give words to that. Um, the, the great uh, intellectual, and uh, Martin Buber, I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. Martin Buber wrote a great essay called I and Thou. And he was writing about people. He said that, Justine, you and I don't really exist. Not really. What exists is between us. It's the relationship. Even if it's a few seconds or a few minutes like we've had, that's what exists. And he was using the word relationship in a different way than we usually, he, he considered that thing between us as a kind of electricity that some people call God. That's what I felt with the eagles. That's what so many of the people, Paul and the octopus, the little boy and the dog, he didn't say that, but so many other people use different words to describe exactly that in the book. I like to name things, so I call that the habitat of the heart. I think that there are two habitats. There's the physical habitat that we work so hard, as we should, to protect and nurture. And then there's this other habitat, the habitat of the heart, which exists between us and other forms of nature. We do hardly anything. 
to protect and nurture and teach that. But here's the deal. If one of those habitats, one of those two habitats goes, so does the other one. That's why this is so important. I think this has something to do with the future of environmentalism. I don't think we're going to survive as a species until we do as much for that habitat of the heart as we do the physical habitat. And I think that there's a word that connects with that idea of the habitat of the heart and that whisper of recognition between two beings when time stands still, as you described. And that's the word reciprocity. Yeah. And uh, I, I would love for you to to elucidate for us what that means to you. I wish I had the words right in front of me because at near the end of the book, I come to this conclusion. And I say we need a new ethic that to deal with other wildlife. That conservation, I've said this before in other books, conservation is no longer enough. Now we need to create nature. But we need to change our cities, inventions of biodiversity and all of that. We need to give as much as we take. We need to give more than we take. And so for every uh, acre that we destroy, we need to add a couple more acres to the environment for the survival of other species. For every dollar we spend in our schools on the virtual, we need to spend at least another dollar on the real on nature, experience, outdoor classrooms, natural play spaces. For everything we take from nature or receive from nature is a better word. We need to give back. We need to nurture nature as much as it natures us. We need to do this in a thousand ways until the loneliness passes away. Wow, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just want to say, as I went through the book, there, besides all the stories, uh, one of the creatures, one of the critters that you talk about in the book are wolves. And what I noticed about wolves is that, like human beings, we, we identify with primates, you know, gorillas, chimpanzees, because they kind of look like us, I guess. But what I learned from reading the book is that the ethics of wolves and their community is such a great model for us. And when we're living our best selves community-wise, we're living like wolves. And I, I, just, I just wanted to mention that. That's only one little piece that, that you'll gain when you start to delve into this book. And I just want to thank you so much, Richard, for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Justine. It's an honor. Thank you. It's been my honor for sure. Um, I've been speaking with Richard Louvre, and he's the author of Our Wild Calling, how connecting with animals can transform our lives and save theirs. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, richardlove.com, and he spells his last name L-O-U-V, as in Victor, L-O-U-V. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us on New Dimensions.
This is program number 3,716. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.